Last week, leaders with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints agreed to pay a fine for illegally hiding the size of the church's investment portfolio for more than two decades. The Securities and Exchange Commission released an order that lays out all of the unlawful activity, and you'd think it would be arcane and legalistic to read. I mean, we are talking about finance law after all, but it's not. The document is almost a story, a history of how it all went down, how the church's president and his counselors authorized a scheme to create these shell companies, these fake companies, to keep the government and the public from learning about the tens of billions of dollars the church had amassed over the years. Today in Radio West, we'll walk you through that story, and we invite you to join us after this. Keep your KUER membership up to date with My KUER. It's an online portal for you to manage all aspects of your support. Update payment or contact information, increase your monthly donation, or just pitch in a little extra. You can view past donations, print a tax receipt, and reach out to us about your account by sending us a message. Log in or create an account today at KUER.org slash MyKUER. For years, people had wondered just how much money does the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have? There was some vague sense that it must be a lot, a lot of property and stocks, and who knew how much tithing money was coming in? But church leaders weren't telling. Oh, there were those who were looking, scouring the internet for clues, for some kind of opening, because surely that much money had to leave tracks. And sure enough, Mark Pugsley, a Utah securities fraud expert, said it does. In 2018, somebody who had a background in tech did some really clever detective work. They identified a company, an LLC, out of state that had a domain name, meaning their website was registered to an address in Salt Lake City. It was Intellectual Reserve, which is the LDS Church's intellectual property holding entity. They thought that was odd. And they started looking into that company and identified that that company was filing these forms that disclosed huge holdings in the stock market. He pulled a search that then identified all the other companies that had that same domain registration, all the other websites. He identified 12 companies throughout the country that seemed to have no connection to one another. He also managed to track down all these financial filings that all these companies had been making with the SEC. And that disclosure, for the first time, tied together these 12 seemingly unrelated companies. They all tied to the LDS Church in Salt Lake City. It was a big deal. It seems like this definitely started a process within the church to evaluate the process that they'd been doing for so long. And this was a process that had been orchestrated by the First Presidency themselves to try to conceal how much money they had. Because it turns out they had a lot. So much, in fact, that in 1997, the church created a department to manage its growing investment securities. They called it Ensign Peak, after the hill that overlooks the Capitol. But if church leaders wanted to hide the size of this investment portfolio, they had a problem. There's a federal law that says if you have at least $100 million in a fund, you have to fill out a form that says you do. This form has a nondescript name. It's actually a number, Form 13F. And right from the get-go, there was more than $100 million in the Ensign Peak Fund. A lot more. There was $7 billion. And remember, once you fill out a 13F, the public, 
the media, your friends and enemies, they all know how much money you have. Beginning in 1998, the managers of Enzyme Peak sat down with the first presidency and said, hey, we've got a problem. We've got these forms that we're supposed to be filing. It's an SEC rule, and we're not filing them. What should we do? We don't know exactly what the conversation was, but at some level, the first presidency of the church said to them, don't file the forms. Maybe figure out a way around it. What we learned last week was the scheme they came up with to find a way around it. They didn't fill out the forms. They got someone else to do it. According to a document released last week from the Securities and Exchange Commission, the church's highest-ranking leaders approved a plan to create shell companies. They're fake companies with made-up names and addresses outside of the state of Utah. And they gave them a business manager who would fill out the 13F form. So they started with one shell company, and a few years later, the money kept growing, so they created another shell. A few years after that, the money keeps growing, they create another one, and then another one, 13 of these fake companies in all. And all of this was illegal. The church's stock market portfolio has been such a tightly held secret for many, many years. I work in the finance industry, and so had heard lots of rumors. I'd actually met people that worked at Ensign Peak. But it was such a black box. In fact, if you go to the building where Enzyme Peak is located, they are not listed anywhere on the marquee. You don't know which floor to go to. You would have no way of locating these people. You could do a search on LinkedIn and find a few of them, but not all of them. Otherwise, no one knew anything about it other than that they were managing the church's money. A lot of people, including myself, really wanted to know, what is this secretive entity doing? And how much do they manage? I was raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I was taught to revere the living prophet as the authorized representative for Christ himself. It is troubling to many church members that I've spoken to to learn that the prophet himself, President Hinckley, at that point, basically told these folks at Ensign Peak to violate the law. They told him what he was supposed to do, and he and the other First Presidency members at the time had to make a choice. Either we follow the law or we hide the money. Apparently, they decided that it was more important to hide the money than to follow the law. And then they continued to make this same choice year after year for approximately 20 years. It's Mark Pugsley. He's a securities attorney. We'll hear from him again here in a moment. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're breaking down the story of the LDS Church's extensive efforts to hide its massive investment fund. The church and Ensign Peak Advisors have agreed to pay a fine of $5 million from the Securities and Exchange Commission. Tony Semerod of the Salt Lake Tribune told us the SEC order makes it clear both Ensign Peak and church leadership violated the law. The SEC's order is a cease and desist order telling Ensign Peak and the church to stop what they're doing and then spells out the ways in which they violated the Securities Exchange Act, which is federal law that sort of governs regulation of markets. So the main violation is put quite plainly in that order. Um, Let me read that first part. It says, from 1997 through 2019, Enzyme Peak Advisors failed to file with the Securities and Exchange Commission certain required forms that would have disclosed the size of the church's equity portfolio to the commission and the public. So the violation here is they failed to file a form. And on the face of it, it it could be said and maybe is, that's kind of benign. So just how serious is this as a, as a violation? Well, so to be clear, these are quarterly forms. Yeah. So this wouldn't have been just one form. This would have been four forms per year for more than a decade. Yeah. And this is goes to the role that the SEC plays 
it's the federal agency that ensures that markets are transparent, markets aren't manipulated, mm. that large investors don't have the upper hand on others by requiring portfolio holders with more than $100 million of publicly traded equities disclose each quarter what they're holding. So I think you have to sort of take it not only in a cumulative sort of way in terms of this being done repeatedly over many years, mm. but also the sort of the, the, the lengths that they went to, yeah. to kind of keep these holdings hidden, essentially. Let's talk about the, the, the order itself. We, and we'll put a link to this on our, our website if people want to look at it. It's nine pages in all. And it doesn't just mention – I thought this was interesting. It doesn't just mention in you know arcane terms that the church violated the law and then enumerated the penalty. It's actually a kind of a, kind of a narrative, kind of a history of how this played out um, in kind of simple terms actually. You would think it would be somewhat more complex for a, an order from the SEC. Um, did you find that interesting? It's, I, maybe this is how they all work, but I found that interesting that there's kind of a story that plays out here. I really did too. And to the extent that it's a timeline that meets the SEC's requirements for what is included in a document, this it's also kind of a fascinating yarn. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one, I think, pretty clearly indicative of the sort of central motive here. It sort of repeats again and again that the portfolio had these sort of near misses where it looked like it was going to be tracked back to them, and then they would take additional steps, and then St. Peak would go to the first presidency and then come back with a, a new plan of action. So it's a very interesting story. Does the church actually concede to all of the points in the order? Is it technically the church admitting guilt? Because the order says right up front that the respondents, that the church and 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 Ensign Peak, they neither admits or denies the findings in the order, but that it does consent to the entry of the order. What's that about? We have thus far a, a relatively limited statement from the church in that regard, yeah. sort of affirming their commitment to comply with the law and, and rather passively saying re- regret mistakes made, but also are very adamant about now considering the matter closed. Mm-hmm. They do say that since about 2000 in this timeline, that Ensign Peak had sort of received and relied on the advice of legal counsel on how to comply with the reporting obligations. And, you know, and there, there's a sense there in which they're sort of maybe laying it off on the lawyers. But we don't have very much in terms of what they're acknowledging and what they aren't. Yeah. I think, Tony, it's important to clarify who knew what, according to this order? First, the question is, who came up with this ruse? Oh, that's, the, that's the word you use in your reporting. Who came up with this? Whose idea was this? Well, based on the SEC's order, there appears to have been a pretty clear juncture where Ensign Peak brought this sort of privacy concern to senior church leadership, but they also brought with them a plan for how to get around it, if you want to, if you want to put it that way. So it does appear to have been Ensign Peak advisors, not necessarily the the motive to keep it private, but how to yeah. do that. Essentially, Ensign Peak advisors' idea. So, th- so the order says basically, Ensign Peak created the scheme, but, and I'm going to quote the order here: with the knowledge and approval of the church. Um, and yeah. the order gets even more specific. In the reading of it, it says this. Here I'm quoting again. Enzyme Peak did not have the authority to implement this approach without the approval of the church's governing first presidency. That's pretty clear. That's pretty specific. Right, right, right. And and there's another point in that SEC order where it basically says that the initial structure for this financial reporting came at Enzyme Peak's recommendation. But it's very clear that Ensign Peak recommends and then senior leadership decides. So the SEC order says that rather than just disclose to the public and the government, they had this big, large portfolio of money. Instead, 
here's reading from the order, the church in Enzyme Peak created 13 limited liability corporations. Now, I don't want people to get confused here. What, what that means is they created these fake companies. They started with one. Then it got big. They, they created another fake company. They created another one. Then they created another one. They created 12 of these basically fake clone companies to have them file the forms and prevent the public disclosure of the church's securities holdings, right? Right. And the portfolio was then kind of carved up among these 13 to not only obscure kind of ownership of all of this, but also to kind of limit the size of each of the 13 sets of holdings, apparently to further throw off the possibility that this was under the church's ownership. And, and, and Tony, we should explain, as you, you do in your article, that with, with basically with the approval of the church president and his counselors, Ensign Peak put a lot of effort into creating these front companies. I wanted to go through this because it's kind of extensive. It's an elaborate ruse, as you put it. They give them an address outside of Utah. Again, they're, they don't want people to make the connection here. They give them a business manager. And the business managers, and this is in the SEC order. And in fact, let me read it. Business managers were selected because they had common names and a limited presence on social media and were therefore less likely to be publicly connected to Enzyme Peak or the church. That's interesting. And then they create this, this, this voicemail. Each of these clones was assigned a local phone number that would go directly to voicemail. Do you want to say anything about that? I mean, it's fair to say this is a pretty elaborate way of going about this to keep people from finding out about this fund. Well, yeah, and and I found it interesting that the SEC notes that none of these LLCs spread across the country actually did business at the location where yeah. their address was reported. You know, at its peak of 13 LLCs, that sort of started to unravel People were able to associate the business manager's names with a roster of church employees. And Mm -hmm. so even given how intricate the efforts appear to be to kind of obscure that ownership, it was still sort of detectable. And at various junctures, that set off alarms. And, you know, they they would sort of move increasingly toward, okay, what, 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 what can we do in addition to further obscure this? Of course, the big question here, Tony, is... Why not just reveal that you have this fund? Does the order explain why the church chose not to basically not obey the law and just file these forms and then expose yourself to people finding out about your investment portfolio? I think the most explicit the SEC is about what motivates this is just a a concern that the public or church members – might be alarmed at the size of the portfolio. When the whistleblowers' claims broke in 2019, the head of Inside Peak Advisors did an interview with the Wall Street Journal in which he acknowledged that there was some fear that news of the size of the portfolio might discourage some church members from tithing. And the church has made very clear just how sacred it considers tithing to be. It's characterized as this sense of the need for privacy is born of a kind of urgency to keep that financial relationship, if you will, with its members sacred. Government and everybody else has no business in, in interfering or even knowing about how the church uses those funds. And so it gets a little hazy because, again, going back to the start of our conversation, this, this was surplus tithing. This was, this, this was reserves there's some kind of question what relationship that money has with the original tithing money that hmm. seeded the fund. Hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about the uh, the church's statement that they released about this um, SEC violation and order. And I should say it's pretty basic, It's and it's quite brief. It's only about 219 wor- – well, it is exactly 219 words. Okay. Um, Here's what the statement says. Uh, Since 2000, Ensign Peak received and relied upon legal counsel 
it's interesting there they don't say the church. They say Enzyme Peak. Since 2000, Enzyme Peak received and relied upon legal counsel regarding how to comply with its reporting obligations while attempting to maintain the privacy of the portfolio. And all of this is written in just basic passive voice. And it doesn't sound like the church is taking responsibility exactly. I mean, received and relied upon legal counsel, but it doesn't say, as the order does, that they approved a scheme to illegally hide the fund by creating these fake companies. I would agree that the church's statement keeps it at the level of Ensign Peak, although it does close at least the narrative portion of it by saying that Ensign Peak and the church have cooperated presumably with the SEC over the last couple of years to kind of get this resolved. So the church is acknowledging that it was involved in getting the settlement over the finish line. Did the church, when you look at that statement that they released, the church, did they apologize? Uh, Here's what it says. It says, we affirm our commitment to comply with the law, comma, regret mistakes made, comma, and now consider this matter closed. I, I guess you could technically say that that's an apology. If it is, it's certainly a passive one, right? Yeah. Mistakes made. Right. It acknowledges errors, and I believe in some of the additional quotes provided by the Public Affairs Office, they, they refer to these as, as errors. That's uh, fair, but only goes so far in terms of how you characterize these violations. But yeah, there is regret expressed, but I'm not sure most people would read this statement as a direct apology. Let me ask you finally. The, the church says the matter is now closed. Is that is that right? Is it closed? Well, to the extent that you can gauge reaction on social media yeah. beyond individual anecdotes, there does seem to be a pretty clear hankering for more among church members that are concerned about this. I think even if the fines had been $1, the fact that the SEC chose to make this public and in the detail that they have is a serious penalty for the church in the sense that it it has mending to do with its memberships and acknowledged in some of the quotes that we've gotten a need to kind of rebuild trust. I'm not sure the matter is closed. Tony Samarad, he's a reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune. He covers business and real estate. We'll put a link to his reporting along with the SEC order on our website, radiowest.org. We'll take a break and come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Being a dependable, trustworthy news source, that's our goal at KUER. In order to meet that goal, we depend on listener contributions. Your support ensures the local and national news heard on KUER remains independent, commercial-free, and accessible for all. If you rely on our programming to stay informed, become our newest sustainer with a gift of just $5 a month. Start your monthly support at KUER.org slash donate. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Last week, leaders with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints agreed to pay a $5 million fine for illegally hiding the size of the church's investment portfolio for more than two decades. We're discussing what the SEC described as the great lengths the church went to to hide this money. We should mention that we reached out to the church, invited them to come on the program. We also asked them to clarify some parts of the statement they released last week. A church spokesman told us they have declined. Mark Pugsley joined us this week. He's an attorney in private practice. His focus is whistleblower claims and securities fraud. That's his professional expertise. We should also mention he left the LDS Church in 2011 after what he described as 45 years of faithful membership. We began the conversation talking about the SEC order itself, the nine-page document that details the violations made by Ensign Peak and church leaders. Having negotiated these, I can tell you this one is unusually long. Hmm. It has really an interesting amount of detail about the history of this and how they got there. And 
the thing people need to understand is that this is an order that is a negotiated document. So lawyers will understand that. Others hopefully will understand as well that this order isn't something that the SEC just wrote on its own out of whole cloth. First of all, it investigated this case for several years and obtained emails and documents and memos, and that's all in here. Yeah. But then this order, or at least the, the, the language in the order, is provided to the LDS Church's lawyers and Enzyme Peaks lawyers to the extent they're different, and they, they read it and they comment on it, and then they ultimately agree on this language. So the result in this order is something that was negotiated and agreed upon by parties on both sides. How closely held was this secret of this fund? Who knew? I mean, outside of the the Ensign Peak advisors, within the church itself, who knew about this big, big portfolio of funds? So there is a story about that, and that is um, – Several years ago, uh, Boyd K. Packer, who was then the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, showed up at Anzine Peak's offices and knocked on the door and said, I want to know <laughs> what the heck you're doing in here and how much money do you have? Wow. And the story goes that Roger Clark, who was the president of Anzine Peak, came out and said, Elder Packer, love you to death, but we cannot tell you that. And the only people that are aware are certain members of Anzine Peak. Uh, which has apparently about 75 employees, but there's just some that know the full picture, not even in that group they don't all know, hmm. and the First Presidency themselves. And as far as I understand, that's it. That's it. Even the Quorum of the Twelve did not know until this information came out how big the portfolio was, which is stunning. L- looking at the SEC order, how clear is the SEC about the involvement of the church leadership itself? Because – there's a difference, not maybe not a difference, but there's Ensign Peak, and then there's President Gordon Hinckley, President Thomas S. Monson, you know, uh, down the line. So, so how clear is the this this order about the actual involvement of church leaders? You have to read it carefully, but there is a sentence at the end of paragraph one of this order, which makes it very clear that. The First Presidency themselves, the three members of the First Presidency and possibly the presiding bishopric. So it's unclear exactly which is which in this order. But senior church leadership refers to the First Presidency and they micromanaged the Enzyme Peak Fund to an extraordinary degree. All of the critical decisions, including, as I said before, the decision not to comply with the law, were made by the First Presidency. And that's – like I said, this is a stunning document and that's one of the most stunning aspects of it in my mind is the level of involvement the First Presidency had year after year in instructing Enzyme Peak to violate the law. Where does the money come from for this fund? Because the church has said this is not tithing money. It's not tithing money that helped finance the City Creek Mall, for example, and, and that was funds that came from the Enzyme Peak Fund, right? Um, but the order makes it clear that the fund was formed and created through excess tithing. So is the church basically sort of acknowledging here that, look, yeah, this, this money's tithing. What do we know about that? Well – it's very clear in the order in paragraph three that the money in the $100 billion is what the whistleblower has said. This order talks about $37 billion, which is a, just a portion. That's the money that Inside Peak manages. Hmm. They also use a lot of outside money managers to manage their money. So the $37 billion talked about here is really just a third, as we understand it, of the total portfolio. Very important to know that. Yeah. When it talks about where the money comes, the SEC order that the church agreed to makes it clear that the money in Enzyme Peak's portfolio comes from primarily excess tithing. So um, there's a, a news article I recommend if people want to know about this. Um, it came out in fe- on February 8th, 2020 in the Wall Street Journal. The title is Mormon Church Amassed $100 Billion. It was the best kept secret in the investment world. Great article because they quote Roger Clark, the head of Enzyme Peak, quite, in quite a bit of detail. They also provided information to the Wall Street Journal, which is 
amazing about what the church's operational costs were. <laughs> At that time in 2020, they added up to approximately $5 billion a year. The, Wasn't that the first time the church had sort of oh, come yeah. publicly and said I what they're operating? I believe it. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. In modern, in, yeah. mo- in modern Mormonism. Yes, in way, yes, yes, yes. And yes, it's expensive to run the church. They have buildings. They have employees. They have that whole office building downtown. They have one of the largest real estate portfolios in the world. I mean, and that's not just church land. They own all this other stuff. So, yeah, it takes a lot to run the church, about five billion dollars a year, but they get more than that in tithing. And so when they, after they pay their operational costs, the rest of the tithing money is put into Enzyme Peak every year, year after year. I'm sure that amount varies, but it just adds up. And when you have that much money in the, in the stock market, especially over some of these really fantastic stock market growth years over the last few years, you know, they've just, it's just exponentially grown and they don't take any of the money out that just sticks in there and rolls over, rolls over, and it gains uh, value year after year after year. The other fascinating revelation that came out in this Wall Street Journal article is Mr. Clark, the head of Enzyme Peak, also admitted that the reason they kept this all secret was because they worried people wouldn't pay tithing. That is not in the SEC order, but that is in the Wall Street Journal article, which is logically consistent with what you would expect, right? Hmm. I mean, the church doesn't need the money is the problem. And if people knew that, I think there was a real concern by the first presidency that they would stop paying tithing. So we talked earlier uh, with uh, Tony Samarad of the Tribune who helped work us through this sequence where they start creating these ghost companies, these, these shell companies. 2005, they create another one. 2011 or 2012, they create two more and so on and so on. Um, one of the things you mentioned is in this sequence, there's a, there's a particular moment that's conveyed in the, in the order where the first presidency says you need to be creative about finding ways to, to hide this money. Would you, would you sort of take us through that? Sure. Um, this is in paragraph 11 of the order that, again, the church's lawyers agreed to. It says, on March 21st, 2005, Senior leadership of the church approved a new entity to be created with – and this is a quote. So this isn't something the SEC wrote. This comes from a quote I assume from a memo that was given to Enzyme B. To be created with, quote, better care being taken to ensure that neither the street nor the media could connect the new entity to Enzyme Peak. So that's what happens initially. They're given these marching orders. What what is that expressing there? It's expressing that the church had a real significant concern that they didn't want this information to get out and they wanted them to figure out a legal way to do it. I think that the church, to their credit – They got some legal advice. That's what they've said in their press release. And they tried to follow the legal advice. But the problem is they apparently did not (laughs) because they didn't give these new ghost entities or fake companies that they'd formed. They didn't actually give anything to – they didn't, give them any, yeah, yeah. they didn't give them any power. It was just – they were empty entities. They yeah. were just an address. There's a great detail that said that they set up – they put these in addresses all throughout the United States, not in Utah. And then they had a phone number and the instruction to the manager of that entity was to just delete all the voicemail messages unless they were from the SEC. <laughs> That's a great – I mean this was a deliberate strategy. And then uh, later uh, after things kind of started to – get bigger and bigger, I think there became more of a concern um, uh, by church leadership that they did not want this information to get out. I want to ask you about one of the things that they did with these companies. So they give them a, an address, as you said, outside of of Utah. They, they find these business managers who have common names, who don't have a LinkedIn social media presence. Mm-hmm. You've described these business managers. They don't give them any any control or any power right. over the investment funds. Which is required under the law, okay. by the way. Okay. So that's – if they had legal advice, I'm sure the legal advice would have been – Give them power. Give them power. Let them vote on proxy statements. Let them have the management control – the management or control over these assets. But that – that no one at Enzyme Peak was willing to give that up apparently. So these were just shell companies. They did nothing. But these business managers I wanted to ask you about because you've described them – as sacrificial lambs. 
So the question is, you know, did the church expose these business managers to, you know, real like fines or prison time? Um, because they were essentially asking them to to violate the law. They were, and in a real way. Now these um, forms that they filed every year um, had a statement that they had to sign that said that it's the information in this form is true and complete. Huh. And the statement also said that they had control, sole investment discretion is the term, uh, of, and that there are no other managers of these securities. And so – That's were, a lie. That's not true. Yeah. Yet they were signing a document certifying personally wow. that it was. Wow. I know that – Members are taught to follow the prophet, but this seems to take it to the next level when you're asked to essentially perjure yourself on a document that's being submitted to the SEC. And that's what these guys did year after year. So this gets us to this question of why didn't they in the first place just reveal the fact that they had excess tithing? They had a lot of money. They were going to go into the market and start investing and – like, why not just say that? What does the the SEC order reveal, if anything, about you know what the church is is worried about? Does it tell us anything at all? It's it's a bit vague, but it basically says that the church leaders were concerned about adverse publicity and adverse consequences of the disclosure. We know from the Wall Street Journal article that. Tithing was one of them. Tithing revenue was clearly foremost. There was a statement also that they were concerned that church members might try to track the portfolio's performance in some way. Also, they, I'm sure, wanted to avoid scrutiny of the holdings that they had. You know, there's certainly people that might say, you know, why are you investing in this company? This is a really uh, unethical company. That could be part of it as well. But in my mind, the size of it was the biggest concern. And and so not only is there this tithing question, but I, I can't imagine people wouldn't you know, kind of start thinking about a portfolio of this size and wondering why a church has to have so much money. I mean, it's a question I ask. I mean, what what is the purpose? What possible purpose do you have in amassing a portfolio that's larger than the Harvard Endowment? That's one of the largest privately owned portfolios in the world. Why? And And if Christ were running the church here today, what would he do with that money? I'm assuming that they didn't want people to be asking that question uh, because it seems unusual. To put it uh, charitably, it seems unusual for a church to have so much money that they're not using in any charitable way. I want to ask you about the $5 million fine. Help put this in context. I want to ask you two things about it. And the first one is, what do you make of the fact that they split it up? Uh, they, they're asking, requiring Enzyme Peak to pay four million of the five million, and the church itself to pay one million. What do, what what do you make of that? Before we talk about the actual m- number itself, yeah, I, I think it's interesting. You do not see the SEC finding churches. It doesn't really happen. Huh. Um, it's extreme. so the fact that they did uh, find the church one million dollars in anything. this case is. Is, a, de- is yes, a big deal. Absolutely, it is. And I think that that's how they expected it to be seen. I mean, honestly, if they really wanted to punish the church financially, the fines would have had to be in the billions of dollars, right? I mean, so it seems clear to me, and I'm speculating here to be clear, but it seems to me that the SEC realized that the punishment couldn't be the fine. Hmm. So that that gets to the second part of the question, which is, gosh, $5 million doesn't seem like that much. What you're saying is the point isn't the money. It's the order itself. The order itself is the punishment because it lays out in such great detail what happened and who orchestrated this whole illegal plan. I mean it's terrible PR for the church. This story has hit every major newspaper in the country. Most SEC settlements do not do that. Huh. This has been extremely poor press for the church, the exposure of the portfolio itself, and then the fact that they worked so hard to cover it up and conceal it from you and me and the whole world is not good for them. And it's not a good look. So, you know, there you go. I guess the question is, will this change anything? Has the church been chastened in some way? Will something change? Well, I I don't know. I'll be speculating. I think that um, in a sense, this revelation by David Nielsen and the other whistleblowers 
uh, did the church a big favor because my suspicion is that this just kind of got out of control and it got ahead of them and they didn't know what to do. It kept growing and growing and no one really could figure out what to do about it. Now that it's out, it's out. And the church says right here, now we consider this matter closed. So they are clearly telegraphing to members that they just need to move right on and get back to their to their duties. Nothing to see here is what they're trying to say. And I, I mean, I can see why they feel that way, but there really is quite a bit to see here. Mark Pugsley, he's an attorney in private practice. He focuses on whistleblower claims and securities fraud. We have a link to the SEC order on our website, radiowest.org. We'll take another break and come back in a moment. This is Radio West. If you're a member of KUER, thank you so much. If you're looking for another way to support this station, consider donating a vehicle you no longer need. Your unwanted vehicle can drive KUER forward. It's easy, it's free to you, and the proceeds really do help KUER bring you the news you count on. Learn more and get started today at KUER.org vehicle. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. So we've been talking about the story revealed last week about how the president of the LDS Church and his counselors authorized a scheme to illegally create shell companies to keep the government and the public from learning about the tens of billions of dollars the church had amassed over the years. Sam Brunson is a law professor at Loyola University, Chicago. He's also a faithful member of the LDS Church. He writes posts on a Mormon blog called By Common Consent. And we turn to Brunson for the question the Securities and Exchange Commission document didn't fully answer. That is, why is it that the church went to such lengths to keep the public from learning about this money? I think one thing they're concerned about may have been precisely what the backlash has been. This idea that the church has so many assets that it's not spending down, that it's not doing anything. I've heard people posit that they're worried that people won't pay tithing. And arguably, if the purpose of tithing is the spiritual benefit of the payor rather than the financial benefit of the organization, that shouldn't be a problem. But, you know, you, they don't want to get in the way. Yeah, It is a discussion whether a church should have, I believe the last 13F said about $40 billion of marketable securities. Yeah, I think that the amount of money is just incomprehensible enough that they couldn't think of something to do with it. And they were worried that people would think that by not doing anything with it, they were doing the wrong thing, which is in fact what has happened. Sam, what do you make of that that larger question there? Um, you know, why would or should a religious institution that has laid out a mission of proclaiming the gospel, of redeeming the dead, why would they amass so much wealth? It sounds a little flip, but to some extent, I think inertia. They were bringing in more money than they were spending. They invested it. And as the amount of money grows, so the return on that amount of money compounds. That sounds really flip because it's a lot of money to start with. But the church has a large membership the church keeps its finances almost entirely centralized, unlike other religious bodies that tend to have the corporate and financial control at a smaller, more local level. So like the Catholic Church, the diocese here in Chicago controls its own assets, controls its own money, which means that the amount of money that it has, because it's not mixed with other dioceses throughout the country and throughout the world, isn't going to compound as much, isn't going to grow as much. And, you know, the numbers are all astronomical, but it's easier to think of ways that you can spend $10 million or $100 million. Once you're talking a billion, $10 billion, (laughs) like, what are you going to do with that? Yeah, yeah. Well, answer that question. What what do you do with that, honestly? And is there any thinking like, I mean, one of the things you've talked about is you you, you say that, and this this is a... um, not everyone agrees with this, but you've said, look, sending missionaries around the world and building churches and building temples, that legitimately you think is a, is a charitable purpose. But you've also said that 
maybe it's time to spend more of that money. So how do you do that? And and what would you do? Uh, Where would you spend it? And yet, because that's, as you said, it's an almost unfathomable amount of money. Right. And the funny thing about it is the church could spend a lot of it and not even reduce the amount. Uh, Presumably they're making a seven or a 10 or 12% return on it. Yeah. So I think if they were to come out and say, hey, we're going to spend down 5% of this endowment every year, and we're going to separate it, say half of it for humanitarian aid and half of it for building and upkeep on church buildings. But if the church came out and said, we're going to do this, we're going to spend down 5% every year, if it's growing at 8%, the 40 billion or 100 billion or whatever it is, is going to keep going up. Yeah. But I mean, if they say we'll spend 5%, 5% of $100 billion is $5 billion. If they spend half of that on humanitarian aid, $2.5 billion is a lot of money. In your blog post, you ask what should practicing members make of this? And I think it's important that you say it that way. What should practicing members make of this? Because it seems like you're making a distinction between the people who read, you know, uh, progressive Mormon blogs and those who are former Latter-day Saints and deeply engaged online and elsewhere, somewhat critical, some who are sort of in and some are sort of out. You make a distinction between them and I guess the very many rank-and-file members. Is that right? I don't know that everyone's reaction would necessarily be different, but the people who are rank-and-file practicing members – have the added decision of how do they engage with a church that ha- not only has been but is currently their faith home. Hmm. When does this become a deal breaker for them or does it? I don't know. I've spoken yeah. with a handful of people who are really hurt by this yeah. and understandably, people who have sacrificed time and relationships and money for the church who've now found out that the church has proven willing to violate the law in the interest of not being transparent to them who have contributed to the church. And what is the answer? I don't want to tell anyone what their answer should be. I do think that this has the unintended and should be unnecessary, but it does have the consequence of reminding us that the church, like all other institutions, is a fallible institution that makes mistakes and does bad things. If that's a deal breaker for someone, then that's a deal breaker. That makes life hard because every institution that we're involved in does some degree of things that will disappoint us. But it's important to keep in mind that the church isn't different from other institutions in that way. So I've read this um, this portion of the church's statement uh, earlier in, in the program. But let me read it again. Um, here it is from the church. We affirm our commitment to comply with the law regret mistakes made, and now consider this matter closed. To that point of regret mistakes made, three words there. I want to key on that word mistake because you've written the church didn't make a mistake. They took deliberate action. Explain what you mean. Uh, I mean a mistake would be we didn't realize we had to file or I thought I filed but I didn't file or I thought – that I gave the LLD authority, but I didn't give the LLC authority. And I mean, 1998, 1999, maybe that works. After 2005, when they changed the entity, and then 2012, when they multiplied the entity, it becomes really hard to argue that it was just simply a mistake, as opposed to a deliberate action taken in violation of the rules and of the law. You're pretty disappointed in the statement from the church. Is that fair to say? I don't think it's great. I am a little bit sympathetic to it. I know that as a human, and I don't want to associate myself and a multi-billion dollar entity too much, but I'm terrible at saying I'm sorry. I'm terrible. I think most people are taking responsibility for my bad actions. So I'm sympathetic to the idea that they don't want to fully own what they did. But this is the closest to an apology I think that I've seen from the church. But that doesn't make it a good apology. 
You write this, to move forward, the church needs to address its error, not to the SEC. It's already done that, but to its membership. What does that mean? What does that look like? In my mind, it looks like addressing the membership. I don't know if it's at conference or in an email. I'm not picky about how it is, but addressing the membership, taking ownership of what it did, saying we not only made a mistake, we violated the law in the interest of maintaining a type of secrecy, and we shouldn't have done that. We regret that we did it. We're sorry for the hurt that it caused And going forward, we will take these steps to ensure that it doesn't happen again. And the going forward part of it should be fairly easy because since 2019, Ensign Peak has in fact filed the Form 13Fs that it's supposed to file. They have started complying, but they haven't addressed the why they did it, why they switched it, or how they're going to ensure that they comply with the law going forward. Let me ask you finally. What difference do you think this SEC order is going to make? I mean, it's not much of a fine for a church. They can afford the million dollars. Um, Ensign can afford the four. Um, but one of the things you've mentioned is you think this is this is how you put it, hitting harder than almost anything you'd seen before. So explain what you mean and what kind of a difference do you think this particular story will make? So I, I think this story is different because – It's an easy narrative to understand. Hmm. The story is basically the church had enough assets. It was under law supposed to file a form. It chose not to file the form and instead tried to get around the law by using LLCs to file the form. It got caught. It paid a fine. It's not a question of it it foot faulted on something because of a complicated law. It's not a question of like securities regulation can be very complicated, but this rule is not one of those complicated rules. So I I think this one is different than almost anything else because it's easy to understand. There was a clear violation. The SEC frankly does a really good job I think in fairly easy to read, easy to understand language of explaining what went wrong and what the church did and how it was motivated. So I I think that this is something that the church is going to have a harder time getting around. And at the same time, it's the kind of thing it, it is newsworthy. It's engaging, it's interesting, and it really fits into kind of a right and wrong worldview where the church is wrong, but not only wrong, but in a way that seems hypocritical, seems going against what it teaches and encourages its members to do. Sam Brunson. He's a law professor at Loyola University, Chicago. He blogs about Mormon issues on the website By Common Consent. You can find a link to that and to the SEC order on our website, RadioWest.org. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter at Radio West. Our producers are Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Kerry Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio. 